Good morning, church. Don't you just love it when Chris reads? I love it when Chris reads the scriptures. Thank you so much, Chris, for serving this morning. Can we give him a hand? I am feeling very desperate. I'm feeling desperate for God's spirit this morning to speak to us. We need his help, amen. I want to spend some time praying. If you look at our passage, this is where it starts. Jesus starts praying. And I think this morning we get an invitation today to begin by doing what our leader, our Lord does, which is praying. So let me begin by giving you a second just to calm your soul. I know that there's stuff going on. There's stuff later you're thinking about. I just want you to calm your soul right now and prepare yourself to hear what God wants you to hear this morning. Are you ready to hear? All right, let's calm our souls and let's pray. After a little bit, I'll open us in some prayer. Holy Father, I ask this morning that you would speak and that they wouldn't hear anything else but you. Father, I pray today that Jesus would be exalted in our hearts and our minds. That today we would choose the cruciform life of Jesus. And Father, we would bear our cross daily. And so, Father, we know this is a, not a work that we could do. Lord, the disciples barely understood this in a moment. And, Father, I'm praying for your Holy Spirit to pour out on us for this morning, understanding of what this really means. Help us by the power of your Spirit. We need you. We are desperate. And, Lord, we know that you love to answer these kind of prayers, that you love to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Father, we love you. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, today's story comes off the back of the feeding of the 5,000. Luke, as a master storyteller, moves from that story to this one, seemingly skipping over some of the details that were told in the other Gospels. If you had a Bible, you could turn to Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through chapter 8, verses 26, and you can see some of these stories, but we don't have enough time to go there today. But one of the things that I want you to see here is Luke is moving really quickly to this point. Why did he do so? Because he has a specific agenda. It's to tell us the most theologically important part of his narrative so far, which answers three specific questions we will focus on today. Here are the three questions. If you're a note taker, you might want to write these down. 
Who is Jesus? Question one, who is Jesus? Question two, what has he come to do? What has he come to do? And question three, and what does it mean to come after him? What does it mean to come after him? Let's first start by looking at who is Jesus. Verse 18 says, now it happened that as he was praying, the disciples were with him and asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? The first thing you see here is this, that Jesus is intimately connected to the Father. Luke here chooses to omit that Jesus here was in Caesarea Philippi, some Gentile territory, but instead chooses to focus on the fact that Jesus is sitting in prayer. Luke often emphasizes this point. Here's why. Every time that there's a major development about to happen, there is Jesus there praying before his Father. What the Father does in the world, so does the Son. Luke wants us not to miss this. This, the questions that follow after this are connected to Jesus' oneness with the Father, his prayer life with the Father. And so here's Jesus. After feeding 5,000, he leaves and takes his disciples with him. And then he starts praying. It was now time for the 12 to know a very important and necessary detail about who he is, whether they were ready for it or not. So he asked a preliminary question. Who do the crowd say that I am? Verse 19, they respond. And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. The disciples here answer for the crowd, which the word here in the Greek used for the crowd means a mass of people of mixed gender who heard about Jesus. They respond by saying to Jesus, John the Baptist is the consensus answer. Like the popular opinion of the crowds is this. That the crowds see you as John the Baptist. Friends, the narrative is ramp- ramping up. Everyone is confused by who Jesus really is. Is it John? Herod, a few verses ago, said this couldn't be. Herod says in verse 9 of Luke 9, John, I beheaded. I took his hand. So he was confused. He too was seeking who Jesus was, the leader of, in the, in the Jewish world. Who is this Jesus? Everyone is perplexed. 
by who Jesus is. It made sense then why Jesus had multiple answers for who he was. Jesus, too, preached about the kingdom, just like John did. But Herod was right. Jesus was not just John the Baptist. Others were saying, Elijah. Now, why would they say Elijah? Well, you guys remember Jesus walking around and healing people and touching people and people being dead and they're coming back to life? Well, that was what some of what Elijah did. So, of course, maybe this is like Elijah who has come back. Then some said, maybe this is one of the prophets of old. In Matthew sixteen fourteen, a parallel passage, they think maybe even Jeremiah is the one who has come back to life. But they're not sure of who this Jesus is. Jesus has done all these things that they're looking at. And the crowds are not crazy for thinking of these things, but they're confused. Who is Jesus? Well, my friends, Jesus is more than John the Baptist. He is more than Elijah. And he is more than a resurrected prophet. Jesus is the Christ. Verse 20 says, Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. So Jesus then flips this question. You heard what the crowds have said. You hear what the culture is saying. You hear about my miraculous powers. You've seen it firsthand. But who do you say that I am? He says this to his twelve. Who he was praying would get this lesson more than anybody else in the world. These twelve are supposed to be the ones who are going to carry the message. Not only to Jerusalem, but to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. These guys I'm praying for would get it, is what Jesus is saying. And the question is to you, plural, not you, singular. This was to the whole crew of the twelve. But what is interesting is this. Good old Peter jumps in here. Don't you love Peter? Don't you love Peter? He's like, well, Jesus, you are the Christ. (laughs) The Christ of God. How awesome is that? I love Peter. I just want to meet Peter one day. I just want to meet him. He is awesome. Jesus said to you, plural, but his, Peter's answer was to Jesus, and it was the answer of the whole disciples. That was the consensus of the disciples. Do you see this here now? 
The crowds have a consensus. They don't know who he is. John the Baptist, Elijah, a prophet of old. Jesus prays, goes to the Father, and then he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And their consensus is the Christ of God. Were they right, church? Yeah, they were right. Praise God. They got it right. Woohoo! That's awesome. A miracle just occurred, church family. A miracle occurred. While the crowds were confused, the disciples got it. God had downloaded from on high this truth about Jesus being the Christ of God. Christ being the Greek word for Messiah or the promised anointed one who would come from God to set everything right again for their people. The Savior of the world. And that is just who Jesus is. But not in the way they totally understood. Not in the way that anybody really understood at that time. The disciples had it in part, but not in full, as the future details of our narrative would unfold for us. And so he continues to reveal more of what it means to, to be the Christ of God and what he has come to do. Verse 21 says this, and he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one about this. Why? Why did Jesus charge his disciples after they had such a miracle moment, after they had such a breakthrough? Why wouldn't Jesus want them to go start telling everybody that this is the Christ? The Messiah we've been waiting on. Well, Jesus knew human hearts. He knew that if they went and started telling all the crowds around them, that they would not understand. See, the Jewish people were ripe for revolution due to the harshness of the Roman occupation. If you have time later, look up John 6, verses 14 through 15, and see that after feeding the 5,000, the same story, the crowd was really starting to shift to this type of thinking. Jesus was trying to avoid this from happening, to make him a king, an earthly king, a militant political king for the Jews. And that was not Jesus's agenda. And so he lets the cat fully out of the bag on what he comes to do. Verse 22 says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You see, the Son of Man came to suffer, be rejected, but uh, uh, also be resurrected. 
You see, the Son of Man is a reference to Jesus that was used by him often. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, in which the Son of Man is given dominion and authority over all things, and that all peoples and nations and languages would come to serve him. But what Jesus says next would have thrown his disciples off. The Son of Man. Yeah, awesome. That's awesome. We, we down for that. I want the Son of Man. He's about to set everything right. But then he says, must suffer. Must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Which is another way of saying the Jewish governing body of the day, the Sanhedrin, the teaching body of the day. He must be rejected by those who should have esteemed him. And he must be killed. And he must be raised. Whoa. The word must here in the Greek is the way Luke refers to the necessity of God's divine plan to be accomplished. Death and resurrection was the only way forward. The plan was set. God had established it. And since God is the implied subject of the phrase, be raised, then God was in control of the resurrection as well. Praise God. Just like Peter would later say in Acts 2.32, God raised this Jesus to life. Again, church family, this is not the agenda the apostles had in mind for Jesus. In other parallel accounts, Peter rebukes Jesus for saying this. And Jesus rebukes Peter for rebuking him because he wasn't in the stream of what God was doing in the world. What God said through Peter in Acts 2.23, good old Petey right here, says that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter would eventually get it. Peter would get it. Aren't you glad for the patience of God, church? I'm so glad for that. I'm so glad for Petey, too, and his example. Can you blame the disciples for their confusion? To this point, walking with Jesus was awesome. I mean, they were seeing demons cast out, healings everywhere, it was like, Oprah, you get a healing, and you get a healing, and you get a healing. It was everywhere. Crowds of people were flocking to Jesus. That sounds like fun. Then the church, could you imagine that? Walking out to an apartment complex, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit fills you up, and you're like, boom, boom, boom. Your leg was broken. Here you go. In the name of Jesus. And then the crowds started coming out. And it's just fun, right? 
and they were finally starting to get in on the action. Then Jesus says, this? Their leader would die and resurrect? What? Huh? They're confused. Wouldn't you be church? I would have been. This is who I've been waiting my whole life for. Finally, someone who has the moral character to walk with God. I see him praying all the time. In fact, I just saw him praying for me. I know that's why I'm able to understand. Finally, somebody who has not just the, the moral courage to do that, but also has the power and authority to bind demons, to cast them out, to heal people. I want to be with this Jesus my whole life. I want to walk in his ways. I want to know him. No, Jesus, you are not going to die. Then Jesus shifts from telling about who he is and what he has come to do. And he starts to tell them about what it means to come after him. He stops just talking to his disciples and he says to all who hear, it means to deny yourself and pick up your cross daily and follow him. Verse 23 says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. To add to their confusion, Jesus starts talking about a cross. Now the cross was a chosen instrument of the Romans. For custom, if someone was to be killed by the Jews, the chief priests and the scribes, it would have been that it would have been a stoning death. But when Jesus started talking about the cross, it was a clear here that Luke was using this to explain that Jesus would die an enemy of the state of Rome, as well as being rejected and hated by his own people. For everyone there, they would have had in their minds this chosen instrument of death. They would have seen someone take a beating while carrying a cross, having a gruesome death as people nail things into their hands, hanging there on a hill. They would have had this in their mind. They would have seen that journey as they watched people walk before them, as their oppressors used this instrument to keep them down. And this, this is what Jesus is calling them to. Well, sort of. Yes. They didn't know it yet. But this was going to be how their biggest need would be met. That their sins, which separated them from God, 
were going to be paid for. And that is the gospel. And it was simple but complex then and simple but complex now. If you're here today and you are tracking with what I'm saying and you haven't given your life to Jesus, then today is the day. Come talk to me or any of our pastors or the friend that you came with today. Because here's what the gospel is saying. The son of man who came from glory came down in vulnerable human flesh. The king of kings and lord of lords took on a human body, took on human frailty. And although he was king of the world, subjected himself to being killed by his own people. And then given over to his enemies to be stricken, shamed, put on a cross. And he died there. Not so that we could just say, oh, thank you. Because he died for the sins of the world. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. He did it for my and your sins. Because without this sacrifice on the cross, we would not have life. You can choose to receive Jesus today and have life. And then start doing what many of us are learning to do. And that is to learn to follow Jesus in the same manner. And it's through this Jesus walk with the cross that we understand how to truly follow Jesus. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Discipleship, or The Cost of Discipleship, says this. But how is the Christian to know what kind of cross is meant for him? He will find out as soon as he begins to follow his Lord and share his life. And that is the key, isn't it, church? Jesus is commanding us to share in his life, in this cost. You know, plenty of people throughout the years, literally, physically, gave up their lives for Jesus. But I think more of what Jesus is talking about here is what Bonhoeffer is getting at. Everybody say, daily. The daily sharing in the cruciform life of Jesus is what Jesus is trying to get us to get here. Which points to a lifestyle of submission and surrender to Jesus. So that even if you were called to give of your physical body, you would. It is a selfless life. A life of imitating Jesus who poured himself out in self-giving love. 
Don't forget, friends, the motivation here is not just obedience. Jesus did obey, but the rest of the Bible expounds on the nature of this sacrifice. And it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. See, the motivation was not just obedience, it was joy and love. Do you believe that, church? Do you think Jesus went to the cross for you? Do you think Jesus loves you? When you realize the first time that Jesus went to the cross, did the love of God overwhelm you? It did. The motivation was love. Paul picks up on this life in Galatians 2.20. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is I who no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who lived and died for me or gave himself for me. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, flesh I live in faith in the Son of God. And he says, who loved me and gave himself for me. What's Jesus's motivation? Love. Self-giving. Love. That is what Jesus is calling us to on the daily. And as we continue to look at the next verses, we see Jesus pressing this upon his disciples with some more metaphors. Verse 24 says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This word for life here in the Greek is psyche. Everybody say psyche. Oh, we can do better than that. Everybody say psyche, which is often translated life or soul. Okay, here it could be either one and it's probably both and it would be right. So what Jesus is saying here is this, a life spent subject to the dominion of darkness is no life at all. It only makes sense to spend your life doing what will inherit eternal life and that is following me. That sounds like an easy choice, right, church? Jesus is giving. Sounds like he's saying, dominion of darkness, uh uh-uh, we shouldn't do that. We should follow Jesus, right? That sounds easy. But isn't it funny how silly it sounds to follow the world until all the goodies of the world are thrown at us and we start living a selfish life instead of a selfish, selfless life? Could you imagine this, church, throwing away your whole eternity for some stuff that don't last? It could be money. You guys know the whole thing with Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh's like, man, bury me with my treasures. He got a gold tomb, his body's in it, but he's no longer there. Those jewels are still there. He can't take it with him when he's gone. But it doesn't have to just be possessions. It could be jobs. It could be careers being 
our master, governing our lives. It could be family. Family might be our number one. A super spouse. Some, some people might be on the gram like, look at my spouse. Oh my goodness. My spouse. Look how awesome my spouse is. My spouse is dope. Look at my spouse. She over there cooking. I mean, for real. Super boyfriend. Oh, I got a boyfriend now. Awesome. Whatever it is, whatever your whole world is, it's not worth your whole soul or your full devotion. Your full devotion, your allegiance, your life should be for Jesus. There's only one person that that should belong to, and that is Jesus. You know, Jesus was tempted with this too. I love Hebrews. He was tempted in every single way that we were. You know, Jesus is tempted. One of the temptations was this, that Satan was saying, literally, I will give you the whole world if you just worship me. But I'm so glad that Jesus didn't give in. Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And I just want to imitate Jesus. Don't you? He is our founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's be unashamed about that. Let's be unashamed about Jesus because what Jesus says next in verse 26 is this. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Verse 27 says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Meaning this, if you are ashamed of Jesus and this life of discipleship, when Jesus comes back and sets everything right, then it only makes sense that you are not going to be on his team. And his team is stacked. I mean, this is what he says. He says, my glory, Jesus' glory, my, my goodness, that's enough right there on its own. And then he says, my Father's glory. I mean, Jesus is doubling down. I mean, this, this is like one of those moments that it's like, oh, oh man, snap. And then he, he says, not only that, but with the angels too. So, I mean, like, all the moments in the scriptures you can think of when an angel shows up and it's just one and this is all the holy Jesus ain't playing and some of them would partially see this type of kingdom and its glory like before they would die which is a debatable verse about what this means I personally think it is the transfiguration, which is the next story we get in Luke. But there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there, and I don't have time to summarize all of it. If you want to have fun this week, go get a whole bunch of commentaries and read what verse 27 means. It's a lot of fun. 
But let's come back and summarize. Jesus is the Christ of God. He came as a suffering Messiah who would be rejected by his own people and killed and then raised on the third day. So in order to come after Jesus, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and follow Jesus, choosing the self-giving way of the cross over your own way. If you do not, you will lose your life. But if you do, for Jesus' sake, you will save it. It is not worth your soul to choose the world. So do not be ashamed of Jesus, and he will receive you when he comes back in his full glory. To close here, I want to have us meditate on what this daily means. Just something for you to ponder. Many of you know what this means. It is a day-by-day trusting in God and situating and posturing your life towards this end. What we are saying is, abide in God. But you abide in God by picking up your cross and following Jesus, who has gone before you in this manner. But this daily peace is key. Please don't miss this. I think many of us are wrestling through what healthy rhythms look like. My hope is that we truly want to be healthy and not just want to control stuff so that we can control what happens in every season and make it the same and predictable and manageable because the world has been so crazy and circumstances so crazy. I see rhythms in the Bible, but I also see another thread in the Bible which sometimes can rub on our rhythms. What I see is a daily trust in the Lord our God. Jesus here is saying daily Pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our what? Daily bread. Jesus also says in Matthew 6.34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for what? The day is its own trouble. Listen, I'm not anti-rhythm. I'm not anti-planning. I'm not anti-calendaring. I'm not anti-boundaries. But consider what this might mean. When I hear people in our culture sometimes talk about rhythms and planning these days, what I hear is guardedness. Sometimes I hear flat out selfishness. And at a deeper level, what I hear is people trying to avoid the troubles and even the daily cross-bearing that Jesus calls us to do. There are troubles of some kind every single day. Haven't you found that most of life is just trying to like mitigate 
or get ahead of daily troubles. I need to make enough money so that tomorrow I'm not living paycheck to pay what? Check. I'm trying to exercise my body so that tomorrow my body's not broken. Lord, help me with that. Oh, my goodness. Oh, man, I've been, I've been trying. <laughs> Most of life. In fact, maybe some of us operate so much in that zone, trying to think of every way to stop the troubles that you live in, that you live in a posture of fear instead of a posture of faith. Insurance, my friends, has made a killing playing off of people's anxiety like this. Partisan politics and news pundits have swung people doing the same thing. But maybe it's time to start thinking a little bit differently about this. How I can become the person that when God says go, I go. When he says stay, I stay on the daily. That you move in a way that is not about guilt, but is motivated to pick up the cross because you are free to just obey Jesus. That is driven by gospel abiding in the daily. Getting your marching orders on the daily. Where it is a privilege to bear the name of Christ in all that you do on the daily. To submit to his will on the daily. To choose the crossway daily. And when it seems like you failed, to choose the crossway again. By repenting and receiving the grace that Jesus offers to you. Receiving the gospel which says you could not achieve this without Jesus anyways. Peter didn't have this all down pat, did he, church? But by God's grace and patience, he helped Peter finish well. John 21 talks about this, right? Jesus tells Peter what kind of death he was going to have. And Christian tradition talks about that Jesus went to an upside down cross. Jesus can help you finish well, but don't run away from the cross. Because let me give you some more good news. You guys ready for some good news? God knows this is the best path forward. Do you know that the same manner that Jesus walked is good for you? Not always pleasant, but good. See, friends, does the way of selfishness ever really lead to life? Have you, like, ever thought in your mind, man, I was really selfish today, and I'm super happy about that. Has that ever happened? I... I don't think I've ever, when it, when it finally hit me that I, that was the way I was moving, was selfishness, I never felt afterwards, yay, I was selfish today. The slay of selfishness leads to death. But instead, Jesus is offering us a whole different way of life. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, come to me. Take the cruciform way of living. Take the cross. And on the other end, you will receive resurrection life. 
you will receive resurrection life. Friends, do you trust God with your time, with your talents, with your schedules, your money? We don't talk about money often. One of the greatest ways we can tell is by the way that we handle our money. Here's the biggest question. Here's the bigger question. Do you trust him with your actual life? Because when you get down to it, if I take out my wallet and I throw it there and I start wondering about why that is so valuable to me, it's my livelihood. It's your life. Do you trust Jesus with your life? Even to that point, you, when, when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, do you trust him that he's going to really provide for you? Or is it just like, yeah, he'll provide for me as I X, Y, Z. Church, we need to get back to trusting the Lord and putting our actual life in his hands. Because guess what? It's really trustworthy hands. Can I get a little testimony here to close our time? Has Jesus provided in ways for you that you never understood? Has Jesus came through in times that were just clutch? Yeah. Hey, has Jesus ever, ever, when you were lonely, came by you and stood near you and comforted you? When you thought you were at your lowest moment, did Jesus lift you up? Jesus is trustworthy. Amen, church? This is why we take on the cruciform way. Because we follow his steps and he promises us that on the other side is glory. Do you believe that, church? My friends, put your life in his hands. And we will receive the promised resurrection power. And when you think about all the people in your life that really got this, people who discipled you, who mentored you, who spoke life to you, when did actually things in this world that mattered, when you thought about that life, was it a life of selfishness or was it a life of self-giving love? Just think about that, ponder that. Because I can tell you that anybody who was a moral change agent, who actually did something in this world, think about Gandhi, think about Martin Luther King, think about others. If they did something in this world, they had a life that gave. It was self-giving. And I am just calling us to this, to a, just a, back to a core truth, daily picking up our cross and following them. They received it as joy, and they had plenty of works talking about how they saw God moving in their lives and how it was joy for them. And it, even if it cost something, they knew that glory was to come. And day by day, we get the wonderful opportunity to trust him and say yes to Jesus as he leads us to the cross that transforms us and prepares us for the glory to come. Amen, church? Don't you want this way of life? Don't you want the life of Jesus? It's really the only way. There is no other way. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
that makes a whole different sense when you start thinking about what he's saying about you're coming to me. You're coming to the Father through my way of living, the cross. My friends, as we finish our time, I just want to give you a second to meditate on this. And I'm going to invite the worship team up. And I I just want to have you take a second to think, what would it look like for me to daily pick up my cross and follow Jesus? What would it look like for me to daily pick up my cross and follow Jesus? And after a little bit, I will close us in prayer. Father, my Father in heaven, I really want this to be my life. So Lord, I pray that this would go deep in my heart. And Father, I pray for my friends that daily cross-bearing that leads to resurrection life would be the way in the normal way that we function as the body of Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ loving one another, laying our lives down for one another laying our lives down for the world choosing your way over ourselves even if it's costly and Father I I pray that Lord, you would lose some things. Lord, there's some lies going around. And I pray that we would not be captive by any lies of man. But instead, the word of God would sit in our minds. We would meditate on it day and night. And we would let it wash over us. And teach us on what it means for each person to pick up their cross, whatever that looks like, daily. And Father, as we go from here, Father, I pray it would make us a changed church. We'd have good times in our community groups processing this. And Father, your glory be made manifest by the way that we love one another. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we're so thankful for your word. And how it challenges us and encourages us and gives us hope. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name.